Deuteronomy chapter 31, we're reaching the end of Moses' life. Uh, he is recounting the law, and as we talked about in the past two chapters, particularly the last chapter, he continues to consolidate the law and its instruction down to even more understandable fine points. And uh, now we get to see the passage from Moses uh, to Joshua and uh, the leadership roles here. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 1, Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel and said to them, I am 120 years old. I can no longer go out and come in. Also the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross over this Jordan. Um, you know, people mock the Bible, say, oh, you know, longevity, 120 years, how ridiculous. You know, that's absolutely absurd. Uh, there's lots of evidence uh, that in the ancient world, uh, lifespans were much longer. Okay, um, don't know if you're aware, but uh, lizards uh, never stop growing. Okay, they throughout their entire life, however long they live, they continue to grow and get bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, you're able to gauge uh, their age and teeth, bone structure, size, wear, all kinds of things. From that, and we have fossilized records of lots of beings, creatures that were well up close to a thousand years old. Okay, so uh, you know, the scripture says that here Moses is telling us he's 120 years old. I just happened to read, maybe you saw it, uh, one of our uh, uh, veterans passed away at 113 years old just a couple of days ago. That's the outer limit currently set by God is 120 years. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, you're going to be in, the oldest people in the world are going to be in that neighborhood is uh, what you're looking at. Uh, the human race is breaking down. The gene pool is breaking down. God created us uh, to live eternally. Uh, sin corrupted that, brought death into the world. Deterioration followed Adam and Eve lived to be almost a thousand years old, right? Methuselah, 969 years old. And since the flood, especially, there has been a great decrease in the longevity of the human race, according to the scripture and according to the records we've been able uh, to discover. This man has been sustained by God. And there are several here, including Joshua. If you think of him as being some young spry guy that was helping Moses out, he's about 103 at this point. So, you know, Everybody that thinks, well, I've reached retirement age, I'm no longer useful, keep in mind, right? God very often uses those who are well-seasoned and wise and have capabilities, right? Most of us understand that the brain has more to do with productivity, right? We often think of the brawn as being the thing, right? What's that old thing of working smarter, not harder, Okay, so here God has Moses in this place, and he's reached 120 years old. And the reason we're reaching the cutoff doesn't have much to do with his age. It has to do with God's plan, right? Now they're going to enter into the land, and Moses is not welcome to enter in with the nation of Israel because of his particular sin, and God's going to talk to him and to us about that. So you shall not cross over the Jordan. This Jordan, the Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations from before you and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you. 
just as the Lord has said. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites and their land, when he destroyed them. You can review that in Numbers chapter 21, uh, verses 24 to 35. Uh, the Lord will give them over to you that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. And here's part of that commandment anyway, the, the core, the center of that. Be strong and of good courage. I want to dwell on that just for just a moment because uh, we are commonly taught a form of helplessness in Christianity uh, that makes it sound like, oh, well, God's in control. He's sovereign. There's really nothing you can do good or bad, you're just along for the ride. Uh, well, uh, that leads to a lot of lethargy, a lot of inactivity on people's parts as though, you know, we shouldn't, uh, you know, try to force certain things or issues or work. No, it's, you know, a needed thing to kick down some doors and to do the work of the Lord. If you think entering into the ministry and performing the work of the Lord and being part of of what he's called to do is easy. It's not, right? These people are going to have to go conquer giants. God is going to be with them. God is going to go before him, before them. He's going to prepare the way. They're not going to be on their own. They're not doing it in their strength. They're doing it in the strength of the Lord. God claims the victory as his own, right? Uh, but within that, we must be cooperative. Uh, you know, This is not a passive faith that we're involved in. This is a faith of action. We must be engaged in the process. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear, nor be afraid of them. Fear, right? Concentrated in doubt, which he's going to talk about, is the enemy of faith. I mean, think, think about what faith is, right? It's believing and then thereby acting. Uh, whereas the direct opposite of that is doubting. Faith is a confidence. It's not a confidence in ourselves. It's a confidence in the Lord and what he's capable of and what he's called us to and what he's doing in us and what he's doing through us. If we're shrinking away, if we're doubting the circumstance, it's going to destroy your faith. It's going to dismantle everything that you would look to see the Lord accomplish in you and in your environment. As a very destructive thing in the heart and mind of a, you know, we say a believer, right? As though it were just a label that you could put on yourself. A believer is someone who's literally that, right? They believe. They function in their faith. So many people say, I'm, I'm a Christian, when in fact they aren't actually a believer. They, they, they don't trust the Lord. They don't trust the scripture. They don't trust what he's doing. So, you know, consider what the Lord might be saying to each one of us, right? Because it can be in degrees, can't it? Right? Yes, we're a believer, but we also wilt in certain circumstances. So consider how the Lord might be strengthening you this morning. Do not fear nor be afraid of them for the Lord your God. He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Sometimes our mindset uh, is that way, and the nation of Israel expressed that, right? God led us out here to kill us, right? We had faith. We believed in He part of the Red Sea. We walked through, but now that we're here in the trouble, in the desert, in the heat, in the trial, I think he's probably just going to kill me. You know, and, and that becomes the mindset often of Christians. 
is, yes, he led me, but now the trouble is on, so now he's not leading me. Is he with you? Did he direct you? Is he there? Will he forsake you? Is that God's character to leave you and forsake? Certainly not. So consider. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him, in the sight of all Israel. So this transference of power that is taking place is happening in the sight of everyone so that it isn't just that you get the publication later. Joshua is now your leader and everybody's left the question like, how real is this? How sincere is this? Is that no? God is making this a public thing before everyone that no, this is the transference from Moses to Joshua. Set it in the sight of all Israel. Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. Now, Behind this, everyone who's hearing, this is significant. Why? Because Joshua is of the previous generation, right? And all of the previous generation has passed away. So there's, there is a clause, a special allowance in the life of Joshua that he's going to deliver them over and he's going to bring them in. Moses can't go in, but Joshua can. So significant, you guys, doctrinally. So significant. Why? Uh, Moses represents, he's the federal head of the law. Right? Uh, Joshua, even his name, uh, Jesus' name in Hebrew literally is Joshua. So Jesus, Joshua can lead them into God's promises. Moses can't. The law can't. Remember that, right? Because there is a legal a legalism tied up in every one of our hearts that has this mindset that I can earn my way to heaven. I can work my way there. I can be good enough. I can improve myself. I can do the things necessary in order to get to heaven, get to God, be accepted by him. And, and the Lord said, no, there's nothing you can do. That's why he became a man and paid the price. For us, right? Joshua, symbolizing Jesus. Jesus can bring them into God's promises. But the law, the rules, the regulation can't. Uh, you know, maybe you've run into people that, you know, have this mindset like, oh, see, you'd be acceptable to God. If only you went to work, you know, church on Saturday. If only you'd stop eating pork. You know, if only you did these things addressed this way. You know, always did these, never did these. Then you'd be acceptable to God. Uh, we're never going to be acceptable to God. We're, we're always sinners. We're always imperfect, right? That doesn't give us a pass to go live in sin and do whatever we wanted to. Read Romans 6. Uh, God has redeemed us, therefore we live differently. Joshua, Jesus, can transport us into God's promises and God's fulfillment in our lives. So he's going to go with you, cause them to inherit the promises of God and the Lord. He is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. In verse 9, it says, So Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord and all the elders. Of Israel. Now, there are a couple of little debates 
amongst the scholars here about what law are we talking about. And really, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, we're talking about all of Leviticus that he's talking about. Are we talking about all of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you know, the Torah, the law combined? Are we talking about just this book of the law, Deuteronomy? Are we talking about Deuteronomy chapter 30 and 29? Who cares, right? I mean, Moses wrote this book of the law, whatever that pertains to. You're going to run into this all the time when you're, you start reading commentaries online. It's, you know, everybody decides they're right. And then they cluster up together and criticize everybody else that doesn't agree with them. Pride is what you're looking at. So however it falls out, the the law that Moses is referring to, be it, like I said, just the previous couple of chapters, the entirety of Deuteronomy, all of Leviticus, or all five books, the law that Moses writes by hand that is being referred to here, he delivers to the elders of Israel And uh, we'll see what they do with it. Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the end of the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, so the year of Jubilee, when all debts were canceled, when, you know, servants were set free, when land uh, is being restored every seven years. Uh, This is a great celebration for Israel. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, which initially uh, you know, is in one location and then later in the second location of Jerusalem, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. So every seven years, I want the entirety of the law read for the entire nation of Israel to hear collectively. It's a remarkable thing. The Lord is calling for gather the people together, men and women, little ones, the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and to carefully observe all the words of this law, that their children who have not known it may hear and learn the fear to fear the Lord your God as long as as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. So note takers, you have uh, four things here. Hear, learn, fear, and observe his word. Obey his word. The observation is obedience. Uh, every seven years, these people are going to review the law for these four purposes. Now think about this. The whole of the law is going to be reviewed in a seven-year cycle. So let's just say, you know, first time you hear it, seven years old. Next time you hear it, 14. Next time you hear it, 21. Next time you hear it, 28. This is going to get ingrained in your mind where you hear the entirety of the law. It's important. It's significant to us that we are continuously absorbing the word of God. You know, so much so that God puts it down here for his people that I want you to have these very marked occasions in your existence, in your history, where you're taking this in. Uh, We've been here in this church. I've been the senior pastor here for for 20 years, if you can believe that. And, And we have read from Genesis to Revelation three times. We've been through the whole Bible, taught every book. And there are almost 20 of the other books that we've done as many as five times. 
we want the Word of God to be central for the purpose of these four things, hearing, learning, fearing, and observing, obeying God's Word. Uh, there are many people who are in church and around the Bible and hear it all their lives, and maybe they've heard it. And you talk to them and, oh, yeah, I know that. I've heard that. And, and maybe, they, maybe they've even learned it, right? They, 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 they can talk to you about it. You talk to them, they've got a knowledge, they can talk to you. Often where this loses traction is in the fearing. There's no respect. They're, they're literally not afraid of the things written in this book. They're not afraid of the God behind it. They're, this culture has moved to a place where fear is bad. Right, you should you should never be afraid. God is your father, you know. You shouldn't ever have any fear of your father. Uh, yeah, you know, dads, uh, your children should have a fear of you, N not the type of fear, right, that torments, uh, but the fear that invokes love, respect, and then the observation, the obedience, right. Uh, you know, the, the curses pronounced previously and what comes in the next chapter, uh, believers need to be respectful of, right? You know, you, you should fear uh, the rabid dog on the end of the chain, right? There, there needs to be a respect there. It's dangerous. Uh, you know, my son-in-law moved back to California a number of years ago. And one of the first family gatherings they went to, uh, this little yappy dog that was, you know, the family's cat out in the corner wrangling with something at the fence all at once, lets out a massive howl, and they go over there, and there's a rattlesnake that has just killed the family dog. They get the kids running around, and they go, there's a rattlesnake present. You need to be fearful of that which can destroy you. You know, the Lord holds eternal judgment in his hands. Uh, and, and it isn't a matter of he wants to delve that out upon us, right? Because that's actually designed, built, and reserved for the devil and his angels. But we're eternal beings, and what he's doing is lovingly inviting us into his presence. If you reject that, then, you know, you inadvertently are saying, I don't want to be in your presence, so the only other place to exist for all of eternity is excommunicated from him in hell, experiencing the punishment, experiencing the pain. There needs to be fear in the heart and mind. You know, you, you hear the word. You go, yeah, I know the Bible. Yeah, well, have you truly learned the word enough to where it creates fear in you, which generates an obedient response, that you want what God is offering. You want the goodness which he has laid out, you want him, right? Rather than rejecting him and experiencing the only alternative. So consider what the Lord is saying there. Verse 14, then Moses, uh, excuse me, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves, you and Joshua is the idea, in the tabernacle of meeting that I may inaugurate him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. Now the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud. The pillar of cloud stood above the door 
of the tabernacle. Huge, high, vaulted ceilings inside this, essentially a tent uh, at this point, 15 feet or so. Pillar of cloud there. That's how the Lord uh, represented and presented himself. So they don't actually see God. They see the pillar of cloud. And apparently, God speaks audibly uh, to them. So they hear uh, the voice of the Lord, whether it's just in their heart and mind or whether it's you know actually with their physical ear, the Lord said, verse 16, to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land, where they go to be among them, and they will forsake me. Notice that. They will forsake me. Right? He said, I will never forsake them. So you have to view that through that lens and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them and I will hide my face from them and they shall be devoured and many evils and troubles shall befall them so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because of our God, because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they have done in that they have turned to other gods. This is often an accusation that is made against God. He has forsaken me. He has left me. He has abandoned me. He does evil to me. When in fact, right, he's the same as he's ever been. He's accepting as he's ever been. He's in the same place he's always been, readily accessible without any strain to all of us. It's the fact that we've departed from him. You know, the nation of Israel raises this accusation, and the prophet Isaiah answers them in Isaiah chapter 59, beginning at verse 1. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy, that he cannot hear. But your iniquity has separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear, right? New Testament, in the book of James, James said, draw near to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Uh, we have to do the drawing near, right? Jesus said, John 15, we must do the abiding in him. He'll never let go of us. He's not going to forsake us. But if we abandon him, then you can expect that that's your experience is going to feel like that. Uh, the Lord is always present, always available. I love the fact, uh, New Testament, uh, Jesus uh, has fed the people and then sent them away. And he's gone up on the mountain and sent the apostles across uh, the, the Sea of Galilee in the boat. The storm comes up. And I believe it's Mark that records that uh, they're rowing away in the middle of the night, and here comes Jesus on the water, and it, it specifically records, and meaning to pass them by. <laughs> He's just cruising by, like, wow, really looks like they're struggling over there. You know what I'm saying? And, and they freak out and call to him, and that's when he comes over and gets in the boat with them, right? Jesus is always in your proximity, but you must call out to him. He is always available to you in, in your worst of troubles. Uh, but, you know, meaning to pass you by, you know, he may just be going about his business, doing his thing. If you do not call out to him, 
then you're going to just strain at the trouble you're currently experiencing, right? Beckon to the Lord, call out. Think about how many times this is reflected characteristically in the scripture, you guys, right? The people fall into sin. They're being bitten by the vipers. The Lord tells Moses, make the brass serpent, put it on the pole, stand it above the camp. If they just look at the brass serpent on the pole, they're healed. How rebellious do you have to be to say, I'm not looking at that snake. You know, so I don't care. I don't care how many people have been healed. I refuse. You know, I'm not looking to the God of the Bible. I refuse. You know, how could a loving God send people to hell? I'm not going to worship that God. You know, people get angry. Oh, okay. Then you're going to suffer the consequences of not beckoning him into your boat, right? Of not looking to his sacrifice on the cross, of not turning your heart, your mind, your lives, your eyes, your prayers to Jesus. You're going to be left in your misery. God wants to rescue. Verse 19, now therefore write down this song for yourselves. Now, when we get to reading the song, it doesn't just roll off the tongue, okay? In the Hebrew language, perhaps it did, and maybe there was a melody that Moses developed first and then put the words to the melody and it all worked nicely. Uh, if you read it as we're going to in the English language, it does seem kind of clunky. It, it just rambles along. The message is the important thing. And I'll point out that Moses writes this as a song, but it specifically records that he said the words to the people. It's the message that's significant, right? So when you read anything, I don't really see how that's a song. Understand that it's the message which is most significant. So he writes a song uh, for yourselves and teach it to the children of, e of Israel. Much easier to remember scripture when it's in a song, right? Uh, whether you know it or not, you very often know a lot of the Psalms because they've been put to song and we sing them, you know, frequently. Uh, you can memorize scripture much easier. You know, think, think about all the stupid rock and roll country lyrics that you know, uh, you know, that will never escape your brain. Right? How many people here remember C.W. McCall? You remember the, the whole, all the trucker music of the late 70s, right? Rubber Duck. Remember? I can quote most of that. Seriously. Wolf Creek Pass. You know, why? Why do I have this embedded in my brain? I, I have no need. But it doesn't bless anybody, you know what I'm saying? Or maybe for a laugh, but it doesn't, it doesn't build you up in your faith. Right? I sit down and study the scripture and I pass out stone cold, go right to sleep. My flesh does not get entertained by this. The song will embed it in your heart very often. And uh, it's very significant, very important to the heart, the mind, the life of the believer that you absorb the songs of the Lord. Right? Listen to Christian radio. Listen to Christian music. Worship the Lord with your heart, your mind, your melody. Let, let it be. You don't sing well, great. Sing alone in your vehicle. You know, off key, out of tune, loud as you can. The Lord will be blessed and you'll be blessed for pouring your heart out uh, to the Lord. So he writes this song, put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. Darn, that's not really encouraging, right? The Lord wants this written as a testimony against them. Uh, the Lord is saying, you're going to come off the rails. And I want this song to be in your memory so that you remember the things that I said to you and how they, in fact, condemn you. So it's a testimony against them. Verse 20, when I 
brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers. And they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat. Then they will turn to other gods and serve them. And they will provoke me and break my covenant. Then it shall be when many evils and troubles have come upon them that this song will testify against them as a witness, for it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants. For I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I have brought them to the land of which I swore to give them. You know, here we are, we haven't even entered into the luxurious living, and these people already struggle uh, to follow me. So I want this testimony to be written against them. Some of the terms, uh, you know, our, our culture today is offended with. I mean, how dare he call them fat? That's just, I can't believe, right? Our culture is is in in the process of rewriting everything, you guys. Our local county right here has developed a commission, and they are going to go through the laws and change them so that we are no longer offensive in our law to the criminals. We're not going to refer to them as criminals. We're not going to refer to them as inmates. We're not going to refer to them as lawbreakers. We're not going to, we got to, we got to use all these different pronouns and adjectives and different things to describe them because we don't want to be offensive. Wow. Okay. The foolishness that, that is right. Uh, Hear the simplicity of the scripture. Uh, foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. The rod of correction drives it far from them. We are living in a generation of people whose parents did not correct them, and that foolishness never got driven from their hearts, and now we get to experience it day to day. Hey, let the Lord drive the foolishness from your heart. Amen? My heart. That we would walk with him and respect him. And, and when he says something harsh to us from the word of God, even when we recoil from it, understand that he's putting that there for our betterment. And not only for my good pleasure and my betterment, but that my betterment would bless you and your betterment would bless me. God wants us to be servants of one another in this process. The guidance, the correction, the maturity, the improvement. He's going to fulfill this. Therefore, verse 22, Moses wrote this song the same day, taught it to the children of Israel, then he, uh, now I want you to notice here, there's a capital H on that pronoun he, okay? He inaugurated Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and of good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land of which I swore to them, and I will be with you. So it's God that inaugurates Joshua, not Moses. And if the pronoun was not enough to convince you, right, then the one speaking says, I made these promises to your fathers. Only God can say that. Uh, that's important and significant because uh, those of us that enter the ministry must do so because it's the call of the Lord. We don't want to enter into the ministry because it's a vocation. You know, I could have been a welder. I could have been a mechanic, but I decided that I would be a minister. That, that's not how the Lord wants us to approach these things regardless of what path we come from in life 
the Lord wants us to serve him because he has inaugurated us in whatever area and to whatever effect. The Lord is the one who brings us in. Verse 24, so it was when Moses had completed writing the words of this law into a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, take this book of the law and put it beside that would that would most accurately be translated inside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God that it may be there as a witness against you um, again I mentioned earlier which book are we talking about who cares it's the book that Moses wrote and then you know the next argument they have is about well was this book supposed to be beside the ark or was it supposed to be inside the ark well, I mean, I'll tell you, it's pretty easy to understand from the way it's written originally that, yes, it was on the side, but it was inside the ark. God wants this package to be inclusive, right? In the end, Aaron's rod, you know, jar of manna, tablets of stone, book of the law in there. All a testimony for and against Israel. There to demonstrate God's power, his supernatural power, but also uh, to condemn them if they depart from following him and worshiping him. So, you know, if, if you've got some big hang-up about that or follow some teacher who does, big deal. Uh, it was to be inclusive uh, that the law was kept there uh, with them and transported with the ark. Verse 27, For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today, while I am yet alive with you, speaking of Moses, you have been rebellious against the Lord, how much more after my death. Well, think about how rebellious, right? Because we go all the way to Jesus' death, and you can go, well, my goodness, there, totally rebellious against the Lord. But then take a step even further as they try to destroy the work that Jesus generated. Stephen is the one who confronts them with this very statement. As they stone him to death, Stephen says to them, you stiff-necked and hard of heart, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. He wasn't talking about you're, you're resisting him right now. He's saying you've always, throughout our history, you've always resisted the leading of the Holy Spirit. Pray to God that's not us, amen? That, that whatever our history was of rebellion, of ignorance, of not following the Lord, that there's a demarcation somewhere where that ended. And the repentance occurred and we turned around and went the opposite direction and we obeyed the Lord. Pray to God that's our testimony. You've been this way. Uh, how are you going to be after my death? Verse 28, gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. That's literally idols. Yes, you know, the, the things they did with their hands and their feet and their bodies in sin, but literally fashioning the work of their hands to create idols. You're going to become incredibly wicked. You know, right now, you're barely following me. Moses passes away, you enter into the Lord's promises, and you experience abundance 
possessions, your heart's going to utterly forsake me. And the Lord is going to be filled with a rage and with an anger. Verse 30, then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel, the words of this song until they were ended. And then that song begins in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. And Moses had invoked as witness heaven and earth. And the idea there is that no human being is trustworthy enough to bear accurate testimony. So he's saying, let creation testify as to the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of these people. Let my teaching drop as the rain. My teaching, uh, uh, sorry, uh, as the rain. My speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb, as showers on the grass. Just, just to take a moment and really understand some of what Moses is saying, right? The, the, the gentle dew and the falling of the rain upon the tender plants is literally invoking the idea of, whether you're aware of it or not, there are trillions of cubic tons of water that fall upon the earth every year. If that comes down, the needed Rain, if that comes down at once, is <laughs> going to destroy everything. Okay? God delivering his word, you know, sometimes we hear it and we go, wow, that is heavy. Oh, no. No, it's not. He delivers it to you lightly. <laughs> he delivers it to you in such a way that you should be able to receive it. It doesn't break you. It doesn't shatter you. God delivering this message to you is not a pounding which is sometimes how we interpret it when we're living in our sin. And here comes the messenger of God, and they, they're preaching at us. They're shoving it down my throat. No, they're not. This is the gentleness of God bringing it to you in such a way that if you would not be stiff-necked, hard-hearted, it would produce in you fruitfulness and life. Right? It comes to you as due. It comes to you in a gentleness. God does this in a very particular way, separating us. Oftentimes, that water releases in one, at once from the cloud cover, and it's broken up in the atmosphere. God designed it that way, uh, to break into drop, droplets and, and come down. We've seen it when it doesn't, right? When it falls, and the heat picks it back up, and it goes up, and it freezes, and it falls, and the heat picks it back up, and it freezes, and it gets bigger each time until it comes down and starts breaking your windshield. Right? No, God delivers his message in such a way that we should be able to handle it. And that's a big part of what Moses is saying here. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. The idea there is unchanging, unmoving. His work is perfect. It's always perfect. It wasn't perfect in the past and now it's become ugly and cruel. No, it's perfect right now. Right? The reason our culture screams against it is because our culture has become ugly and cruel and sinful. God's law is unchanging. It is beautiful. It is perfect. It is good. He doesn't move. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, not, not social justice. 
real justice, right and wrong, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation without spot or wrinkle, without blemish, right? They, they have made themselves perverse and a crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? While they were yet sinful, right? He bought them. They haven't been paid for yet, right? In the New Testament sense of things. Ah, but they were, weren't they? Why? Because Ephesians chapter 1 Verse 4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He paid the price before it ever began. He, he knew the debt and he was there to accomplish it. As a good father who bought you, he has not made you, uh, has, has he not made you and established you? Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you, when the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Think about this. Jacob is the place of his, God's, inheritance. He loves us that much. We are that precious to him, right? If someone has ever left you in a, a valuable inheritance and you are so blessed by receiving it, God is saying we, even as sinners, are his inheritance. This is the value he places upon us. He would abandon all else, right? He did. He abandoned all else to come and rescue us and adopt us and make us his own. Right? This is not a God who has grabbed these people and enslaved these people and made these people his own. This is a people who is loved by him, desired by him. You know, the reflection he's making here, you guys uh, embarrass my kids. I, I love hanging out with my kids and my grandkids. And, and, you know, I don't have a mentality of like, oh, this is great. You know, I just, we had one and they mowed the lawn so nice that we probably should get another one. And, you know, maybe they, we could get one to do dishes and one to do laundry and just, you know, one to change the channel and just I could become a king if I just had enough kids, you know. No, it's about it's about my love for them and friendship with them and fellowship with them. I like nothing better than just hanging out, you know. It, it isn't a matter of what they can do for me. They don't have to bow down and worship and just, you know, I come through the door and, oh, the great father is home. You know, it just that's not where God is at. It's not where I'm at. It's, it's just about the enjoyment. And this is what he did with Adam and Eve, right? He came and he walked with them in the cool of the day. He loved them. He created them, you know, yes, for his good pleasure, but we shouldn't misappropriate what that means. That we are his inheritance. We are his great love. If you think you long to get to heaven and be in his presence, he longs all the more for you to be there with him. This is our heavenly father. He desires us. We are his good pleasure, according to Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. 
He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. That's the pupil. Your body reflexively defends your pupil constantly. I mean, you know, I've talked before about the different variations of the sensitivity of your nervous system, right? You can, you can put a quarter under your forearm on the table and press down as hard as you want. You probably won't be able to feel that there. You put it in your fingertips and you can feel the ridges and the depths. Not that you'd ever want to, but you put that in your mouth and you could probably even decipher the lettering with the sensitivity of your nervous system. Your eye, right? You get a speck of dust in your eye and it will drive you bonkers, does it not? You convince, I mean, just you, everybody else has looked in your eye and tried to get that eyelash out and they don't even see it. And you, for like days sometimes, are like, I know it's there, right? The sensitivity of your eye. This is what God is saying about his relationship with these people. This is how much I love them. This is how sensitive I am to them. Oh, remember this. Remember this. When the trials hit and the difficulties hit, then we start making accusations to God, right? Maybe you don't. Just pray for me about how, oh, you brought me out here to kill me. <laughs> yes, you were doing good and wonderful things for me, but now I suffer so greatly, right? God doesn't lose grip. He doesn't lose touch. He is always this sensitive to us. He's always this much in love with us. That, that uh, you know, apple of the eye. As the eagle stirs up the nest and hovers over its young, spreads out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led them, and there, uh, and there was no foreign god with him, meaning no one else did these things or supported. Now, I need to take a moment here, and this is probably where I'm going to have to leave off sort of an odd place, <clears throat> but um, I have read and been influenced by um, teachers and a publication, a book that I read years ago about this very passage and how the Lord treats uh, us and his children like the eagles treat their young and stirring up the nest and hovering over the young. And the, the description that I read was that, uh, you know, that when the parents build the nest for the eggs and for the eaglets, that uh, they will go and hunt a rabbit and, you know, bring it back while it's still fresh and feed the young, tearing it apart for them, and then use the fur to line the nest and build this warm, comfortable place. But when it comes time to fly, that the mother will rip all the, you know, the, the, the fur out and the tenderness and the softness until it's just sharp pointing sticks and thorns and they'll get up on the edge and then the, you know the the mother or parent eagle will, will swoop at it and dive at it, hover over them knock them out of the nest force them to fly te carry them up dump them off all of that's false none of that is true okay so uh joe Foch, uh, actually interviewed dr clayton white and i went and looked at his research. Uh, he is a former professor of zoology in the Department of Integrative Biology and the curator of ornithology at Brigham Young University. So he is the world's leading expert on raptors and in particular eagles. And he said that he has raised young. He has been at their nests from the laying of the egg to 
their flight over and over again. He's examined them in more detail than any human being has on earth. He knows more about falcons, peregrine falcons, the entire raptor class and eagles than any human. Everybody on earth that wants to know stuff about this class of birds contacts this man. And, and he understands all of it. He has, he has received eggs and incubated them and hatched them and raised them and delivered them into the wild. He knows these birds. And he said, at no point do the parents ever act that way with their children, which is kind of a relief from a doctrinal position. God does not treat us this way. Sometimes it feels like, right, he's ripped all the comfort out of your life and thrown you out of the nest and said, figure out how to fly. He doesn't do that. It's not his character. This is not what the scripture is saying here. In fact, you guys, the way that this is described of stirring up the nest, uh, uh, Dr. Clayton White said that what the um, parents do is they, they come and they do flap their wings, but it's to create air bursts. And the young will begin to do the same thing, and the airburst actually starts to lift them in the nest, and they begin to realize flight. Through God's actions, he's generating in them the understanding of, I'm capable of doing what this creature is doing in front of me. Think about that. God presents himself in your environment, and the way he behaves encourages you that you can behave as God. You can act in faith. You can function as a believer. Okay? And he gets them to the edge of the nest. These parents will get them to the edge of the nest. And they build often, if you've seen the peregrines uh, perches down in Acadia, they're cliffside. Huge. Often when you see them in a tree... Uh, that's a hunting position. They, they often look for cliff sides and mountaintops and really, really high locations where the thermals come up. And when the thermals come up, same thing. The parents will stand and get, they'll encourage the fledglings to stand on the edge of the nest with them. And the parents will begin to uh, raise their wings out and the, the, just the heat rising, they'll begin to elevate and float there on the edge. And they're showing the eaglet, you can fly. And then the parent will take off. And there comes a moment where without ever having that done what's described as this tumbling, falling, that fledgling will just leap off from the edge and glide. Now, the particularly the male in the couple will swoop underneath them and carry them to great heights because they don't have the confidence on their own to flap their way up there or to ride the thermal. So the male will carry them very high and then will dump them off. Okay, but it isn't a plummeting. Okay, when you see when you see these birds out around here, and, and this is all from Dr. Clayton's White's research, and you can go look them up online. When you see these little birds around here, and they're landing on the back of the bird, and that bird just keeps dumping them off, and they're like running at one another, what you're looking at is usually a crow who has invaded the territory of a smaller bird like a sparrow, and that smaller bird is trying to run the crow off. Okay, that is not God's character that is being reflected here. Stand on the edge of the nest. Stand in your environment. Deliver the word to you. Demonstrate. We can lift up out of this. 
You take the flight, begin to fall, picks you up, carries you to great heights, dumps you off, not so you can go screaming towards the earth in fear and panic so that you can learn to spread your wings and fly. Right? The Lord here is saying to the nation of Israel, you're going to enter into the land, you're going to be in prosperity, and that prosperity is going to cause you to lose sight of me, and you're going to become idolatrous, and that's going to lead you into sin. Understand that I'm there in your environment trying to teach you how to fly. I'm trying to lift you up into a better state of existence. Think about about the contrast between that message of how God tears your nest apart and makes things difficult versus this idea of he's there, you know, taking on your form, right? An eagle to an eagle saying, we can fly, we can rise above this. Jesus coming in the flesh, demonstrating to you, you, you can have victory. It's a wonderful picture of our Lord and what he demonstrates for us. So the Lord alone led him and there was no foreign God with him. You know, no other God, no other teaching. You guys got to be painfully, painfully aware of how the other cultures of the world have influenced and affected our culture. Christian culture right here, right? And we're constantly being inundated with the false teachings of the world. Eastern mysticism is just constantly bombarding our belief system. Yeah, as Christians, what you really need to do is learn how to meditate, learn how to empty your mind, you know, learn how to get in touch with the universe. No, right? You need to memorize Moses' song. You need to memorize the Word of God. You need to let the Word of God affect you, touch you, change you. This is what we need, you guys. It's so significant. It's so important that, that we absorb God's word and we let his message, even, even when it condemns us, right? This is a testimony against the nation of Israel. I got to be honest, right? A lot of this testimony against Israel is a testimony against me and my past. You know, let it be that we've learned and we've departed from any level of idolatry and that we're obedient only to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Well, that's more than the time we have, so why don't we stand and we'll pray. And uh, we'll pick up at uh, 32.13 next week. You sure these aren't your reading glasses? They're definitely not mine. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love, for your grace, for your work. We pray that you would minister to us, Lord. Help us to be men and women that are surrendered to you, that are obeying you, following you. Lord, we have to confess that even the materialism, the prosperity of this world, that that prosperity you've given us, we've allowed it to become a false god at times. Help us to not succumb to the distractions. Help us to focus our hearts and our minds, our lives, that we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength. Work in us. Accomplish your will, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.